And so what is something you stubbornly didn't believe that ended up being true? And what did it take to convince you it was true? So I would love for you to break off into groups of twos and threes. Make sure to look around so that no one is left out next to you. And then I'll come back in in four or five minutes and we'll start the sermon. All right, these are my really close friends, uh, Mark and Kenny. Kenny, I was a groomsman for. Mark invited me to do his wedding uh, to Hiroko. And I had already booked tickets to New York, one of my greatest life regrets. Very close friends as well. And um, me and Kenny, we actually spent uh, nine months in Singapore doing theology there. And we were part of a mountain biking gang, so we hit up a lot of uh, downhill roads. Some really beautiful times, uh, stories, but I'm going to skip them all. And uh, Mark and I actually taught me how to rock climb. He's one of the best rock climbers I kn- know. He worked at Mad Rock. You know, I think he's done V9s, V8s, if I'm, and uh, climbed with some pros outdoors because he would host them, and then they would go climbing together. So just amazing climber. Him and Hiroko have done multi-pitched climbs. Anyways, they super close friends, uh, loved them so much. And um, here's another picture. This is at Kenny's um, bachelor party that we were at. One day, Mark invited me to his house. I went to his room. I saw, I saw his wall of ex-girlfriends, which is really interesting. And then I uh, uh, saw his gun collection. Um, and then, like, just his dogs were there. So I just really enjoyed, after so many years of knowing him, getting to see his room and what he's about, which I, I kind of knew. He had some really fun toys. And so uh, interacting with him. And then Kenny and some other guys were there, too. And Kenny's like, hey, come see my room. I was like, you don't live here. He was like, dude, I'm his brother. I'm like, what? And then I walked into his room in utter disbelief. And he had childhood pictures with Mark. You know, he had his bed there. He had all his toys there. And I, I swore to myself that this was the biggest prank in human history. And that he had lived in a, with another family, but as just to con me. Everyone wanted to con me that day, so they moved this entire room into this room to convince me 10 years after we've met that they're brothers. I remember going up to Mark's mom, and I was like, are you also Kenny's, like, did he grow inside of your womb, and you birthed him? And she was like, yes. Like, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're a liar. I didn't believe, though. I, I was like, I felt like I had been teleported to the twilight zone. They're actually brothers. It's crazy. You know, when I think about Matthew chapter 11, which is awesome transition, um, Dave did this amazing sermon on doubt and disbelief. And honestly, he's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. Some of the best sermons in my life happened on the stage from Dave. I didn't know he was that good. So <laughs> it was, it's awesome. I feel like I just, we just hired Kevin Durant. And um, the Kevin Durant of preaching. Um, but anyways, he talked about John, and he focused on these four words, when he was in prison, that all of his doubt and disbelief, this, this question that he brings to Jesus happens because he's in prison. He's in a hole. He's going through hard times, and often that's when we re, uh, recalibrate our reality, is what I always believed to be true. But I want you to notice the way that John treats his doubt. That in his doubt, he dialogues with Jesus. He doesn't go silent. He doesn't isolate. 
He doesn't run away. He goes to Jesus with his question. And even when you look at his question, it's not filled with arrogance and anger and bitterness. It's open-ended. His heart is open. He also does it in community with his disciples. The disciples he's shared with about Jesus from the beginning of Jesus' ministry till now. I have to decrease. He must increase. Look, here comes the Lamb of God. Um, and, and he's having these conversations with them. And I wonder in our doubt and our disbelief, if that's how we treat um, those things. If we, in our doubt, have conversations with Jesus with an open heart. If in our doubt and disbelief, we remain in community, clinging on to brothers and sisters, clinging on through prayer and the word of God. Because in this next section, John is juxtaposed to these Pharisees, to these cities that see miraculous signs, that hear the word of God from the Logos, and yet they disbelieve. And here's how John describes them. He says, what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirgan, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So John and Jesus both had the same message of Jesus uh, coming, the Messiah coming, bringing in his kingdom, but they did it in completely different ways. John was this old school prophet that they kind of forgot existed, right? Prophets hadn't been around for 400 years, but it's like they teleported Elijah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, bam, into, into modern day Israel in the desert, abstaining from alcohol, from normal food, sackcloth, ashes, preaching repentance to a whole generation. This is, this is old school prophet manifested in modern day Israel and the religious establishment rejected him. And then Jesus, again, same message, totally opposite of how John's ministry looked. He sat among, he was in the cities, he visited villages, he sat with tax collectors and terrorists and gangsters and prostitutes, he ate and he drank alcohol with them, and they rejected him as well. And basically what Jesus is saying is that, what do you want from us? You know, like, nothing is hitting you, no matter what we do. It's kind of useless. And I wonder when we think about And then he goes on to these cities, and he starts condemning them. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaba. Bethsaba? Bethsaba. Bethsaida. Bethsaida. There it is. Um, The first city we don't know anything about. It's not referenced uh, in the rest of the Gospels. Bethsaida, Jesus heals someone who's blind there. And then he compares them to these ancient cities found in Ezekiel, right? Sidon and Tyra. And he talks about how if the same miracles were done there, they would have repented. 
He makes the same comparison to Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, listed again and again in the Gospels, where he grew up, where, where he performed many miracles, where he taught often. They didn't repent either. And he says Sodom will be, it will be more bearable on, for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And if you remember Sodom, they're this notorious city where God rained fire down from heaven to level it. And that sounds, that is really harsh in many ways. But we think about the moments where we complain about God in the opposite way, like how he doesn't rain down fire on ISIS or um, in Myanmar where they're genociding their own people or, or on Adolf Hitler. And God just has a really high tolerance for evil. And oftentimes he uses other means to disrupt their power. So I consider Sodom and Gomorrah greater than all the evils found in all those other cities that God didn't rain down fire on. They had a, a welcome to visitors where he, they would just straight rape them. I mean, it was crazy, the type of evil that that city possessed. But Jesus is saying that it's better for this city on the day of judgment than for Capernaum. Why is that? And how does that relate to our lives? You know, when I think about um, this theme in Scripture, there seems to be a connection between the knowledge we possess and our accountability before God. In other words, we are accountable for the knowledge of God that we possess. If you have no exposure to the Christian faith, you are much less accountable to God and the gospel than someone who has heard about Jesus, than someone who's grown up at church, than someone who has been touched by him and cut to the heart by his word, or that one retreat where you're just sobbing. All of those moments that God intersects with humanity means greater accountability. And then an outright miracle. There's just a point in time when our hardness of heart to reject God from no exposure all the way to the miraculous, right? What it takes to say Jesus isn't real or that he's the prince of demons when he's casting out demons, that kind of rejection, right? The kind of rejection where you hear the logos explaining to you the scriptures, that's, that's a specific kind of rejection. The kind of rejection where you see Jesus healing an arm, and you say, that's not God. That's a really specific hardness of heart. And God's saying that at a certain point, there is no return. Because we've hardened our heart to a degree in which we will never repent. Here's an example of that. And, and I guess I wonder where we are in our exposure to God. When we think about our lives when we think about the moments that God was real or that the scriptures was preached in a way where we're convicted, the more we know about God, the more accountable he holds us to. If you're here today and you've not really heard about Jesus, you're kind of asking questions about the Christian faith, you grew up in a totally different religion, you're actually less accountable. But as you hear God's word and he's saying, this is real, I'm real, I love you you're starting to make more and more explicit choices for whether you want him or not. 
e.g. Pharaoh. We think about the 10 plagues of Israel, which are the greatest miracles uh, in human history at the time. People had talked about these um, plagues of Egypt for generations after they occurred, hundreds of years. And, And people talked about them spanning the known world. I mean, we have, yeah, we have, I believe, the eunuch in Acts still referring back to this God who plagued Pharaoh in Egypt. And then when you look at, but when you come down in, in um, Exodus and you dig through scripture, you see how again and again it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Nile turns to blood. That's pretty hardcore. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The, the locusts, the flies, the frogs, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The hail coming down heaven, from heaven, the livestock being destroyed, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then the last couple of plagues, darkness, the firstborn being slayed, it says something different. It doesn't say Pharaoh hardened his heart. It said, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When the Pharisees looked at Jesus and said, you're casting out demons by the prince of demons, Jesus says, don't blaspheme the spirit. You know, it is the unforgivable sin. Hardcore paraphrase, still true. And what he's saying is that when you look into something you know to be God and reject it, your, that rejection layers your heart with callousness. And it takes an even greater work of God for that callousness to maybe be penetrated. But if you reject this this other miracle or other way in which God's reaching you, there's another layer that comes on top. And you continue to go down the line. You continue to say no to God. I'm going to follow my own way. I really don't want him to be real and exist. And there's this point where it's, it's over. We don't know exactly when that point happens, but it's there in Scripture. I wonder, in our disbelief, in our doubts, in our sins, which we all have, we all carry with us, whether our hearts are for the Lord or against it. I've met a lot of people with a lot of questions about God, you know, and, and questions are legit. Doubts are legit. And I believe that if I stand in, on truth, if, if what we believe is true, it's unafraid of questions. Truth stands in the face of all questions and doubts. But sometimes I'll sit down with someone and they'll give me a few questions about the Christian faith. Well, I don't believe I can answer like 98% of questions in a reasonable, articulate way. But then they'll just fire another one. And they'll fire another one, and they'll fire another one. And then I'll pause, and I'll say, if I answer all of your questions, every question you've ever had about God, will you believe in him? And sometimes they they step back and they say, no, I won't. Because I don't want to believe. I wonder if we, in the midst of our questions and doubts, want to believe. Or if we don't want to believe, because ultimately that's the trajectory that really matters. Um, so where are you this morning? 
You know, when Jesus speaks woes over this generation in, in Scripture, over these cities, I imagine it relating to the churchgoers, those who've memorized the Bible, those who've gone to retreats and sat in worship and, and have been touched by God, have seen prayers answered. And he says, woe to you if you continue to reject me. There's this really hollowing passage in um, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 8. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God over and over all over again, and subjecting him to public disgrace. And then he turns into an analogy. And I wonder if this is a moment in our lives where God's stopping us from saying no to him and asking us to repent and turn back. I think maturity in the faith isn't, isn't much more than quickly repenting, <laughs> repenting faster, having a softer heart, wanting God more. And I pray that our community would look like that. This is how Jesus describes the child's heart. He's, at this time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Jesus, this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I just want to focus on one aspect of this passage, and it's this childlikeness, that God wants us to have the heart of children. You know, I look at Liam, and there's these moments where I walk into the room and he just runs to me, and he does a little dance, and he clings to my leg, and it's like he's completely satisfied in me. There's nothing else in the world that he wants, or I'm leaving, and he's just crying because I'm his world. Uh, we, we co-sleep on, on the bed every night, and he'll, he'll slip down the crack of the bed, and it looks so sad and super cute, and he's like, I'm stuck, and then he'll just all... His only trust, his only hope is for me to pull him out of the side of the bed. And uh, sometimes I take some photos before I do that or, or a snapshot. And um, I wonder if we have that kind of dependence, that kind of openness, that kind of longing for the Lord. That's when Jesus intersects in our lives and comes in such amazing ways. Today, I invited Willie to share with us. Um, Kelsey got to go on a mission trip with him. You could con come on up. And he does ministry in the Middle East, Iraq, and formerly Turkey, um, with people who are in refugee camps. And I think there's this beauty to uh, his ministry where he gets to interact with these, ki these kids in the way of desperation and desiring God. And then God shows up in these phenomenal ways. And so, Willie, can you just share a little bit about the condition of these people, how they got there, and then also 
um, a story of God showing up to reach them. Sure. Uh, Thanks, Wilson. Um, Thanks for uh, letting me know of the dress code for this church. (laughs) Uh, I feel like I'm totally uh, overdressed. Uh, Next time I I know to wear my sandals and my shorts. Good morning, everyone. Um, I have the distinct privilege of uh, serving in northern Iraq the last uh, three years uh, among the refugees. And uh, this group of refugees uh, is rather unique. Uh, they are uh, citizens of Iraq. Um, they're called the Yazidis. Uh, they live by themselves, kind of isolated at a corner of Iraq, uh, near, near a mountainside, near, uh, in and around the mountainside. And uh, over a thousand years, you know, they, they've kind of kept to themselves. Uh, they don't really interact with outside world. They don't even interact with uh, the other uh, religious groups in Iraq. Because this people group, they're not Muslims. Uh, they call the Yazidis. And they worship this ancient Persian religion called the Zoroastrianism. And so uh, in 2014, in August, uh, when ISIS was expanding... Uh, in Iraq and Syria, uh, ISIS decided that this people group was kind of in their way, kind of kind of a, a, a sore sight, uh, a, a kind of a thorn in their sight. And so ISIS decided that they wanted to uh, massacre them. They wanted to kind of wipe them off the map. And the way that ISIS justifies that is that this people group, they don't have uh, a, because of their religion, uh, they don't have a book that they can uh, call it kind of their Bible. You know, the Muslims have the Quran, the Jews have the Torah, the Christians have the New Testament, but the Yazidis have nothing. Uh, so, so in the Quran, it says that um, if you encounter a, a group of people that's without a book, uh, then go ahead and try to convert them. And if they refuse, uh, go ahead and kill them all. And uh, the Quran even goes as far as saying that, you know, the women of these uh, people group that, that are without a book, that are being massacred, they are like the spoils of the war. You know, spoils is like, you know, if you leave a banana too long out in the, in, on, on your counter, uh, it, will, it will rot, right? And so they, they, they liken women as, as something spoiled. And so what had happened in August 2014 is that ISIS... Uh, came to this this region. This region is 98% Yazidis. And ISIS proceeded to uh, try to wipe them out. And in the process, ISIS killed thousands of men, uh, up to 10,000. And, and ISIS captured about 7,000 uh, young Yazidi women uh, from age 12 mm-hmm. uh, to about age 25 or so. The purpose of capturing these women is to turn them into sexual slaves, for the ISIS fighters. So, so uh, I come into contact with them in 2015, eight months after the massacre. And the way it went about was that uh, uh, the, this, this group of uh, refugees, they had uh, escaped to Turkey. And in Turkey, they were met by a group of Christians uh, from, from a church. Actually, it was the only church only Protestant church in the whole city. Hmm. And it's a small church, about 35 to 50 people. 
And this church went to the refugee camp and started helping the refugee, cooking them food, bringing them blankets, giving them water, you know, things like that. And after a few weeks of doing that, the, the refugee asked the church, uh, do you have any physicians that can come and help us? And we only want uh, Christian physicians. Mm. And so there was an email that, uh, that, that went out uh, into uh, kind of the Christian community at the time. And, and I happened to receive that email and uh, 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 responded and in uh, 2015, in early uh, 2015, and that kind of started uh, this ministry. So where are they right now? They are uh, these uh, refugees. They're scattered all over northern Iraq. There are about 23 camps of these refugees. Total population is not quite a million, close to a million, and they're scattered all over the place. And um, they are living in tents. Uh, they are completely uh, poor and broke. They, ha- they basically have nothing. And uh, because of that, they, uh, they are very open to any outside help. You see, for a thousand years, these refugees, they have no contact with the Christian group. Uh, all the missionary efforts uh, that try to go to, uh, to their city, go to their towns to share the gospel have all been rejected by them. But because of this genocide, uh, now they're open to the outside world. Now they're open to the Christian uh, missionaries. Now they're open to any Christians coming in contact with them. And so we have had the privilege of serving them. So, so how is God... Uh, uh, what are some of the ways you've served them? That's right. Uh, so our main ministry is really uh, medical and, and, and dental and, and any kind of health care, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, nurses, uh, all sorts of... Optometry? Uh, optometry, acupuncturists, you, know, <laughs> you, you, name, you name it and they need it. Another aspect of our ministry is really we're trying to educate the, the young people. What has happened is this two things. Number one, these Yazidi family, their average family size is 15. In other words, these family have a lot of kids. You know, the, <laughs> the wife, once they're married at, at age 16 or 18, their, their, their primary job is to have a child every year. And so they, these, they, they have so many kids that a lot of times the, the father doesn't even remember uh, the <laughs> names of the kids. This is a true story. Uh, and they don't even remember their birthday. One time my wife was seeing a, a child and turned to the father and said, when was your son born? And the father drew a blank. And the father said, the day that the Libyan dictator uh, was, <laughs> the thro- was killed. And then my wife came up to me and said, Willie, Who's the, who's the dictator of Libya? I said, Colonel Gaddafi. Never heard of him? I said, no. And the day he died was the day this child was born. So they, they have no clue when the kids were born because there's so many of them. And a lot of times they don't even remember the names. And so because they have so many kids and there is not enough schooling uh, in, the, in the refugee game for the kids, each camp has either one or two schools. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So up to 90% of the kids are not going to school. So, so anytime you go to a refugee camp, you see a lot of kids running around roaming all day without anything to do. 
And so this is where we come in. We try to run this English camp. We teach them English. We teach mm. them computer skills. We teach them uh, guitar. We teach them keyboard. We teach them anything that they want to learn. And just uh, to befriend them, to lift them up, and also use it as a platform to really share the love of Jesus with them. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Can you just tell us that one story? Oh. There, I mean, you, even though you're doing so much, there's this helplessness, right, mm-hmm. of like there's so many more. Mm-hmm. But then you've been able to witness God go beyond you and all these other ministries to reach these guys to, to reveal himself to them. Yeah, the, the, the most important thing I, I guess I'm going to share this morning is this, that we are able to do all this ministry because God is at work. Without God being at work among the, this people group and in northern Iraq, we wouldn't be able to do anything. I think God has special purpose and special love and compassion for the least of these, especially the refugees. So, so this is my, one of my favorite stories. One of my uh, translators, uh, he, he comes from a big household. His father has a number of sons. And when ISIS came, my translator uh, quickly packed up all his Uh, immediate family, put them in the truck, and started driving. And so he left behind his father, which is like the patriarch of the extended family, and his brothers. So the father was one hour behind him in leaving the town. And this one hour, the the, uh, ISIS showed up. So ISIS uh, uh, captured the entire extended family of about 65 people. And uh, so my, my translator, his name is Caso, he was able to escape and drive to safety. And he ended up in a city called Zaho. And, and for whatever reason, it must be a miracle, he had grabbed a copy of a New Testament that somebody gave him when he was a teenager. He's now in his early 40s. Somebody gave him in his, during his teenage years and put it in his pocket. So when he arrived at this city, he, he, you know, he felt, oh, I have a New Testament. Oh, I need to go look for a church. So he did. He found the only Protestant church in the entire city. And when he went to the church, it was like 9, 10 o'clock. The pastors were there, and they happened to be praying. So the, the pastors heard the, the, their, his story and proceeded to pray for him. Now, this is like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. While they were praying, this, his, his father, this patriarch, he's a hundred years old at the time. He was sleeping. He was under the captivity of ISIS. Mm. And he had a vision. And guess what? Jesus appeared right in front of him in his sleep. Jesus was dressed in white robe with bright light. And Jesus said, I am Jesus. I'm the light of this world. And tomorrow, you and your family will be released. So, so Caso's dad, a hundred-year-old patriarch, said to Jesus, what about the ISIS? What's going to happen to them? And Jesus said, don't worry about them. I'll take care of them. But tomorrow, you and your family will be released. So he went back to sleep. Next day, guess what happened? The entire family was released. And... And when he was released, when they drive to uh, safety, this 100-year-old father was so shocked, was so surprised that he called up his son, Castle, right away. Say, said, Castle, who is Jesus? 
And so Caso, with the help of the pastor, was able to explain to him. Today, the entire family of 65, they all believe in Jesus. So this is the kind of story we hear all the time uh, in Iraq. Um, I believe, like you were talking about, being, being childlike. You know, these, these refugees, they, are, they, are, they have childlike uh, faith. Not only that, they're the least of these. They are being persecuted by everyone. And not only that, they, they are so naive. They have, they have no intellectual uh, capacity to, to, to talk about apologetics with us. They have no reference point about who Jesus is, who God is, Trinity, resurrection, ascension, virgin birth. They have no concept of, of any of those uh, doctrine that we take for granted. And so I believe that that's why Jesus showed up himself in front of him and said, I am Jesus <laughs> and I'm the light of this world. Believe me. Yeah. And, and it was as simple as that. And, and when, when God appears in front of you, what else can you say? Mm-hmm. What else can you say? So, Man, thanks so much. That was crazy. I heard that story four times. It's still mind-blowing. Um, and I want to pare this down because you were a financial planner mm. for your whole career. Yeah. And then as you see God take these people into a place of childlikeness, God took you there as well. Can you share about that? Yeah. Uh, so my story is, is rather simple. I, I am, I'm 52 right now. Uh, in my late 40s, uh, I am uh, working in a bank, uh, rather successful, Minding my own business, I have two kids. One is was in college at the time. One is what was in junior high. I was minding my own business. I've been friends with Ken and Chrissy for thirty years. They're kind of like my older brother and sisters, so they can testify to all of this. And so I was minding my own business, kind of going through the life routine, enjoying life, really, really enjoying the Southern California life. And uh, I love living here. There's so much to offer. I was loving my life, and then. And all of a sudden, uh, one day, I woke up, and you see, if you looked at me, I look kind of funny, right? Uh, because I have only one eye open and the other eye closed. The reason is, this closed eye, I had a stroke about uh, 20 years ago, 1998, 99. And so, as a result of that first stroke, uh, my left eye became blind. And so, I've been living with one eye uh, since about 1998, 1999. And so I lived through all of this, and this whole time, I, everybody that I, everybody that cares for me and said, Willie, you only have one eye left, take good care of it. <laughs> and so what I tell people is that, don't worry. I only have one eye left, God will never let anything bad happen to my good eye. Uh-huh. Makes sense, right? I have one eye left, I love the Lord, the Lord loves me, so nothing would happen. Guess what? Something happened. One day I woke up, my good eye, I couldn't see clearly. And I knew immediately at the time that, uh uh-oh, something bad has happened. I was so scared. I was so nervous. I was was still doing my own uh, financial uh, investment business. I was minding my own business, everything. And then this happened, and then I was like, "Uh uh-oh, now what? So to make a long story short, I... uh, I went to see multiple ophthalmologists and finally came to a, 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 an ophthalmo, uh, ophthalmologist 
And he said, Willie, good news and bad news. I said, what is it? Good news, now we have a new drug that can heal your eye. I said, what's the bad news? Bad news is that you have to get an injection once every six to seven weeks. I said, for how long? He said, for the rest of your life. I'm going, whoa. So at that time, I was uh, 99% blind. You know, it's been going on for a week. I was being driven around by my family, and uh, I, was, I was blind. So I was at a very desperate stage. You know, for those of you who know me, that I seldom am afraid of anything. I'm like a fearless guy, you know. And so the day I went to the ophthalmologist, when he said, Willie, I'm going to inject this drug into your eyes. For the first time in my life, I was actually scared. I remember sitting in the office of the ophthalmologist. He's getting ready to inject me. And all of a sudden, I, was, I felt this deep sense of fear. And, but at the same time, believe it or not, I felt just about when he was to inject into my eye, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit all of a sudden descended upon me. And the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, fear not. I am with you. I will take care of all your problems. So long story short, after the injection, my my sight recovered. And from then on, actually right even right before that, I pray to God every day, just one simple prayer. And that prayer is that for the rest of my life, please use me. That was my only prayer. Please use me for the rest of my life. And so this was August 2014, the same month that ISIS experienced the genocide. It's the same month that I experienced my my eyesight stroke. And eight months later, the email came. And little did I know what God has in store for me was a ministry to northern Iraq, was a ministry to the refugee. I never heard of the Yazidi, never worked with the refugee. All my life, I've worked with millionaires and billionaires. And my, now I'm working with the least of these. So God has a sense of humor. 